This is The Guardian. Just a quick warning before we get started. Today's episode features some discussion about sex, which might not be suitable for some listeners. Hey, Jane Lee here. Did you know it's been 10 years since the popular dating app Tinder was founded? So today, we're bringing you an episode from our global news podcast, Today in Focus, featuring a fascinating conversation about sex in the digital age. It explores how online dating apps like Tinder and Grindr have expanded and fundamentally changed the way we think about love, sex, and relationships over this last decade. Okay, here's Today in Focus host, Noshin Iqbal. It was so novel at first. You, your phone and an app that promised to serve you endless romantic and or sexual possibilities, and the instant gratification that came when you got a match. I first used Tinder in 2012, and I remember my friends showing me it. Um, we were in my friend's bedroom, and they were like, look at this funny app. <laughs> and they were both scrolling on it. Like, no, no, no. I think the, the thing that I enjoyed most about it was I was living with a friend and we'd sort of be able to sit on the sofa, you know, looking very much as I do now, very scruffy, being able to meet boys. <laughs> Tinder connected you to people within a reasonable distance around you. You didn't have to approach anyone in real life and be rejected. You could swipe through the menu and pretty much order up someone with mutual interests. Sometimes it went really well, and you thought you'd found what you were looking for. I met a nice lady. She was pretty well-educated. She had a very high-powered job. So we went on quite a nice first date, a wine bar, something on those lines, and we had a kiss at the end of the night. And sometimes it didn't, and you'd be left with just the story. So... We arranged a second date shortly after. It was a nice uh, cheese and wine night, quite sophisticated. And towards the end of the evening, she said, hey, why don't you come back to my place, which, which sounded good. I was happy to. Until shortly after, and she said, why don't you give two or three of your friends a call and they can come and join in as well. Uh, I politely declined and didn't see her again. When we asked people to share their dating app experiences, there were plenty of bad dates to talk about. I've had some very odd experiences. And there was this one guy who was desperate to be a slave, um, which everyone at my work found quite funny. There were just certain times where I felt a bit gutted that I'd given up maybe a Friday or Saturday night to meet certain people, having my housemate on standby to be like, Emily, hey, we've had a leak from upstairs and you need to get home immediately. But also, Lots of good ones. I only went on maybe like two or three dates with some people who, let's say, didn't gel very well with, and then went on a fourth date. And eight years later, we're getting married on Saturday. The apps have opened up our dating opportunities, but what have they done to our psyche? How have they shifted how we understand modern love, sex, and relationships? From The Guardian, I'm Noshi Iqbal. Today in Focus, what have we learned from a decade of dating apps? Emily 
Leah Whip, you're the author of Future Sex and a staff writer at The New Yorker. I think it is fair to say that both of us remember what dating was like before the apps came along when you had this world of meet-cutes and bars and meeting friends of friends or, as in my case, my mother being very dedicated to finding me the one. Can you tell me what did your dating life look like before 2012 and how did you meet people? Yeah, I mean, it was just you'd go to a party, you'd hope to meet somebody. You'd go to a bar, you'd hope to meet somebody. You'd ask your friends to set you up with people, maybe. You know, you were just kind of always low-key scanning a room if you were single, I think. And at the time, online dating existed through sites like Match.com and through OkCupid. You also have the dating classifieds and older listeners might actually remember Guardian Soulmates, which was a service helping our readers find love. But they did have this sort of last resort reputation at the time. And then came the apps, notably Grindr for gay men and Tinder for everyone. Emily, why were they such game changers? First, the iPhone came out in 2008. So that meant that you were not tethered to your computer anymore. And Grindr was the first app that really used GPS technology so that you could just see who in your immediate surroundings was not only interested in dating, but was gay. Yeah, it was really that ability to look at people in your neighborhood on your phone and people that you might see around you on a regular basis if you were on a university campus or something like that, like the person you might be looking at in the library. Now you had a way to gauge their interest because you could like them. And then if they liked you back, it took down one barrier to introducing yourself. And the way Tinder was designed was also a key part of its success, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, before Tinder on an, on a website like OkCupid, you had to fill out a long questionnaire. Usually you had to write all this stuff about yourself. Like a lot about internet dating was actually about writing. And Tinder, you just put up a few photos, a few lines of text maybe, but it was just much more playful and kind of wide ranging. And then the real... Game Changer with Tinder was also the mechanism of the swipe. It was a feed of people who had their photos on it. And you just kind of went through. And if you liked them, you swiped with your thumb to the right. And if you weren't interested, you swiped them to the left. And if you both swiped to the right, then you matched and you could start exchanging messages within the app. You could just go through quickly saying yes or no, yes or no. And I remember somebody at the time telling me it put her almost in like a kind of trance state to to swipe through Tinder on the subway. And through your journalism, you did actually meet the founders of Tinder. Can you tell me what were they like and how did Tinder come about? The founders of Tinder were Sean Rad, Justin Mateen, and Whitney Wolf. And Sean and Justin were best friends from Southern California, both from Los Angeles. Yeah, and Whitney was a friend of Justin's sister who graduated from SMU University in Texas. She was a sorority sister there and went there and promoted the app and, and the Greek system on campus. Initially, internet dating was not seen as something you did and as a very young person. It's something you did when you were like a little bit older and your opportunities for making friends had kind of diminished. They launched it first on, on college campuses, you know, people that were just on their phones. And it was natural that they would use their phones to meet 
people because they were already so much of their communications and friendships were going to be mediated through social media. And how quickly did it grow? And what were people typically looking for? Within a few years, it was the biggest dating app in the world. It kind of went to a few more elite universities and then spread to the wider culture. The success of any app is contingent on how many people it attracts. And so they wanted to try to bring in the largest audience they could. And traditionally, the other thing is dating apps, it's much harder to attract women than it is to attract men. And so it's been very common in almost any dating technology to use messaging that might make a reluctant female feel that she's not doing something that might be stigmatized at work or in her family. Tinder was very deliberate in their messaging and in their advertising that it was not a hookup app. It was not merely for casual sex, but also to find friendships and relationships. And yet in the broader culture, people thought of it as a technology that all of a sudden you could just like go over to somebody's house. And there was that, but I I think it was always as much a way to find people that might be interested in serious relationships as it was to find people that were looking for something more casual. It's early days. I sort of remember my friends would, and it is obnoxious, but they would play Tinder like a game because the whole thing seemed gamified and you'd sort of cackle at like all the sort of photo cliches that you'd come across or, you know, just have interactions and dates which were quite memorable for the stories rather than being, I don't know, meaningful long-term connections. But what was your experience of Tinder like? And can you remember the first time you used it? When it came out, I was in like a... a non-committal relationship. So I used it very casually. I wasn't like that dedicated of a user. I was already in my 30s and my first impression was really just how young everybody was on it because I'd been on OkCupid. That was more people my age. And 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 that really struck me because before that, I didn't think of internet dating as a young people's game. When I think back on it now, it feels so naive kind of like I went into it without very much discernment and any match I had I was kind of open to chatting with. Well over time the appeal of Tinder did begin to wane a bit. Emily what were some of the criticisms that users levied at it? I think it's asset and its flaws that it's so wide open. It doesn't really specify any particular interest or demographic. And so as other dating apps copied its swipe mechanism, they were able to distinguish themselves. For example, Whitney Wolf, who left Tinder and started Bumble. The main difference with Bumble is just that the woman always makes the first move. Even just that one simple thing takes out one level of uncertainty and indecision. There's an app called Hinge that distinguished itself by kind of limiting the number of people that you could see every day. And that definitely emphasized relationships in 2014 or thereabouts, an app called Field appeared that is much more sex focused and used the language of BDSM and polyamorous communities. You know, those are the main ones that I've used. And then there's the ones that have been around for decades, like OkCupid and Match. 
There's also those other really sort of niche ones. You know, if there's a community, then you can find your dating app. I mean, I remember Muzmatch being a thing and there's, as in for Muslims and J-Swipe. And then there's, you know, Raya for the semi-celebrity, which was like a... uh, a calling card that you'd made it if you'd made it onto Raya. Yeah, um, yeah. I've used Raya too. It's it's kind of self-congratulatory and honestly not very effective dating app for me, but... <laughs> Which ones did you think you found the best partners or dates on? I joke about it. I'm on Hinge and Raya for more relationship-focused inquiries and I'm on Field for hooking up with people and for having a sexual life while I'm single. And field for me has been the most gratifying and positive experience. For me, it's kind of funny that the more an app leads with a relationship, the more I feel all of the the weight of being in my early 40s, being single, being a female, and all of the kind of expectations and prejudices that come with that. But on the more sex-forward app, I feel very affirmed and desired. Let's put it that way. (laughs) Well, it's funny you talk about the prejudices because those apps do reflect society at large. And in some ways, they open up possibilities, but they haven't delivered the progressive utopia that some tech bros promised us. There is still a lot of racism, ableism, and people, particularly Black men and women, who are fetishized and stereotyped. Do you think the apps have exacerbated this? Yeah, for sure, because you're not experiencing the person as they are. You're experiencing a set of data points about them and people bring all of the prejudices that they do, you know, even more so, I think, because they're thinking about intimate relations. And so, yeah, racial inequality plays out more or less statistically on dating apps. It's disappointing. While all of this has been happening... How have we seen people's behavior change? I mean, I had a colleague tell me the other day that meeting someone in a bar and going up to them is just really alien and weird and you just wouldn't do it. I was quite surprised. I mean, I have friends who say this, but it's still when you hear someone say it so unequivocally, it does shock you about how much dating culture has changed. But what have you noticed? Well, I'm still somebody, you know, my Two big relationships in my 30s, I met them in person. I still meet people in person all the time. So I don't think that's true. I I think people still hit on each other. And when you're in a room with somebody and you feel a connection, you're going to ask for their number, their Instagram handle or whatever else and, and continue the conversation. And especially for single parents, for people with demanding jobs, they don't have to go out. They can do this from home and it's made it a little bit more efficient for them. But at the same time, anybody who's internet dated can also tell you it's extremely inefficient. You tend to have to meet a lot of people before you find somebody you feel a connection to. In a way, what dating apps seem to have done is make romance isolated. I mean, a lot of people say that they don't want to meet someone at work because it'd be too awkward to date someone there, or they don't want to date someone on the university course or a friend of a friend. I think these are younger people, excuse younger, because again, you know, they want their romantic sort of life to come with a blank state of anonymity and this sort of lack of social context that comes from meeting someone from an app. 
Why do you think that is? I've heard that too. And that makes a lot of sense to me because internet dating, you're usually meeting strangers more or less, and it can be a very emotionally rocky ride and there can be a lot of disappointment attached to it. So I can see wanting to go into it knowing that if it goes south, you're not going to have to look at the person every day or everything else that comes with heartbreak. That makes sense to me. And I think also that's true for people who use the app in a more sexually forward way. Anonymity gives people a sense of freedom sometimes. You know, you can try things that you would never actually want to try with a partner. Sometimes doing certain things with a stranger gives you a sense of freedom to experiment. I do think... It's sort of bizarre, but I suppose inevitable that big tech has turned our love and sex lives into another transactional carousel of infinite choice where it's almost like that Netflix menu. Do you think dating apps have made it easier for people to behave in flakier, meaner ways than they might have otherwise done if that person was someone they knew in real life and not just on a screen? As far as I can glean from reading novels, it's always been easy to get hurt in dating. I do think it, obviously, it's so much easier to just disappear from somebody's life. And flakiness is just an endemic part of internet dating. It's just something, you know, people flake on you, you flake on them. I think part of it is that it actually requires a lot of emotional energy, especially if you're kind of more introverted person. All of us go through times when we have more social energy or less social energy. And I, th I think what we've all learned is to not take it personally when somebody flakes on it or to try not to. I really try not to take it personally because usually it's just anything could be going on in their lives. And it's not just about being flaky. It's also about how the apps enable this behavior that has inspired a whole new glossary of terms. I mean, we now have ghosting where someone can just blank disappear on you digitally. And then there's breadcrumbing where you ghost someone and then sometime down the line, remind that person that you're still lurking and liking their social media posts. Emily, how telling is this for you? Early on when I was internet dating, you could sense that the ethics and the language and the manners hadn't been worked out yet. And now there's like a whole etiquette associated with it. Yeah, and a language and a kind of accumulated cultural knowledge about it. What is the etiquette of online updating? Like what are the good do's and don'ts? It's hard, but don't take any one interaction too seriously until you've had some real world encounters. You know, that would be my first piece of advice. <laughs> For me, the physical encounter, the, like nothing really matters until that moment. There's still too much that's carried in the body about our sense of humor, our manners, that messaging. You can filter out some kinds of behavior, but you really won't know until you meet the person. You know, I try not to ghost. I think it's rude and, you know, however difficult it is to say, hey, it was really nice to meet you, but I, I don't think this is right for me. You know, you don't actually have to explain why, but it's nice to give people a little kind, gentle rejection to bolster their own sense of finality with the thing. But what about visually? Given that it is an app where your dating profile is based on three or four pictures. I remember writing this piece back in 2014, where it was about some of the awful cliches you would encounter when you were swiping on Tinder. You know, 
man posing next to sedated tiger or man chugging a hell load of beer. I swipe left on dudes with guitars. It's just, I can't, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I'm sure it's really unfair, but I just... I... What about the DJ guys as well? It's a similar <laughs> vibe on the other end. Yeah, exactly. You know, I'm sure everybody has their list. There's an Israeli sociologist named Eva Luz, who's really brilliant, who's written a lot about internet dating. And she has some line that's like, the problem with dating profiles is that our values are mostly the same and therefore boring. The person that says, oh, I like walks on the beach and I, you know, I want to meet somebody that'll go out and get brunch with me. It's like, yeah, that that's what a relationship <laughs> looks like. It's extremely uninteresting to say that. It does remind me a bit, there was a quote in, in a piece about Tinder with someone saying that before the dating apps, you know, it's really hard to find someone to have an interesting date with. And now the complaint that our generation have is, ah, I'm going on so many non-interesting dates with people. I'm meeting lots of people, but they're not interesting. So ultimately, they do make it easier for us to meet new people. But what do you make of the theory that the amount of choice makes it even harder for people to commit? I think what happens is that you often meet a lot of really nice, great people. And you're like, what's wrong with me? I like this person. They seem cool. They're funny. They have a lot of friends. They're accomplished. Why am I always looking for the next thing? But I, I don't think the world was necessarily better when you had to commit to an unhappy relationship. Or when your dating landscape was sort of like limited to your immediate town, high school, next door neighbors workplace. I mean, especially if you're a queer person, if you're a person with like very niche interests, you know, I've also made a lot of friends through dating apps. And I think most people that use them have, because especially if you're new in town or you're in a place where there's just nowhere you can go, it's a really helpful technology. Coming up, what does the future of dating look like? Emily, to me, it does seem that dating apps have been as transformative on contemporary culture as the pill was to sexual liberation in the 60s. Both have radically shifted the landscape. How true do you think this is? I think it's really true. I just look at the difference between my life and my parents. My parents have been married for 50 years this year. And you know, I never set out to maximize my sexual experience or to date a million people. If you'd asked me when I was young, if that was some goal in my life, absolutely not. But there's not the same social pressure to be in a monogamous relationship, a lifelong monogamous relationship. The economics of the world we live in are less conducive to marrying and starting families. There's, there's a lot of reasons that more people are single that go beyond, I think, some notion of lifestyle choice. The apps reflect this world. It's kind of a chicken or the egg thing. But for me, I think it's more the apps have grown in response to a culture where people are single for a lot longer and also where there's a changing sexual morality that's open to different kinds of relationships and relationships forms. A lot of futurism is focused on technology and gadgets and electronics, but it's actually a lot about social arrangements too. What do you see for the future of dating? It's really hard to predict what might be the next major shift, but 
just mapping from the past 10 years, the changes I've seen have been exploration of non-traditional relationship forms, exploration of experimental sexual practices. There's nothing new in sex, but the language can change and and there's different ideation. There's all these categories of, of sexual orientation that are new in language. I think the heteronormative nuclear family will probably continue to be a smaller percentage of the population's families and relationships conform to that ideal. I mean, that's been the trend. And I think the shifts in gender and the success of the trans rights movement and educating the mainstream about the possibilities of gender have also affected sexuality and more traditional patriarchal forms of courtship and relationships don't feel comfortable to a lot of people anymore. And the apps are a little bit of a laboratory where you can try out different approaches. The other thing I see happening and that I've seen happened in my own life is we've become more adept at presenting our sexual desires. When that was more hidden, it was kind of this like, you know, the language would be sort of sleazy, pornographic, and now it can be more human somehow, maybe. Um, on an app-like field, you know, people just state their sexual desires very plainly and with a surprising lack of fear. You know, initially dating apps really hid sexuality, the ones for straight people at least. And I think that has been shifting. Emily, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. That was Emily Witt talking to Nosheen Iqbal. You can read more from Emily Witt over at The New Yorker where she's a staff writer. And you can also check out her book, Future Sex, A New Kind of Free Love. This episode of Today in Focus was produced by Ned Carter-Miles with sound design by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producers of Today in Focus are Nicole Jackson, Sammy Kent and Josh Kelly. Additional production by Joe Koning and Camilla Hannan. We'll be back with a new episode of Full Story for you tomorrow. Catch you then.